You're listening to Florida Capital Conversations, a podcast series brought to you by Holland and Knight's Tallahassee office. Each episode of this series will take a look at the many different aspects of state and local government through the lens of our experienced legal professionals. Our hosts have a wide range of Florida governmental experience and offer a seat at the table to everyone who listens to these candid conversations. Hi, this is Mia McCown. I'm a partner at Holland and Knight, and I'm so glad that you are here today for our latest installment of Florida Capital Conversations, where attorneys from Holland and Knight's Tallahassee office discuss hot topics and trends that they see as they practice law in Florida's capital city. Today, I am so glad to have my partner in crime, Shannon Hartsfield. He is going to help me ask some interesting questions to one of our other partners, Dr. Nathan Adams, who specializes in education law. Nate is a litigator who practices covers a wide variety of topics that arise in complex commercial and appellate litigation and regulatory compliance. Nate has argued in federal courts nationwide and is a member of the United States Supreme Court, several federal appellate and district courts, the Florida Bar, the Colorado Bar Association, and the District of Columbia Bar. Before joining Holland and Knight, Dr. Adams worked for the Florida Executive Office of Governor, and in that capacity, he supervised several state agency legal departments. As you can see, we're really lucky to have Nate in our Tallahassee office because he has a wide variety of expertise in many topics that touch upon our capital city. But today, we're going to pick his brain on the education issues and how it impacts the practice of law in Florida. Shannon, I know you are interested in this topic, and I know you have some questions that you wanted to ask Nate to get us started. Thanks. Uh, So, Nate, what does it mean to practice education law in Florida? Uh, Well, first, I want to thank both of you for having me today. I couldn't have more prestigious uh, hosts for this press presentation. So thank you for your for doing this. You know, so education to me is the great equalizer. I've always viewed education uh, since I began practicing law as kind of a civil rights issue. It's the amazing, the amazing change that a person can go through to start out underprivileged, to go through, get an education degree and come out on the other side and suddenly find that they're able to be professionals. And so that's why I call it the great equalizer and, and a civil rights issue in, in my view. And the practice of law and education is pretty diverse. It, you know, we talk about K-12 and so some professionals and, and some lawyers are really focused there as counsel for school districts or practicing on behalf of um, IDEA kinds of clients in front of school districts. And then in addition, there's uh, community colleges, attorneys that focus what we call in the state of Florida now colleges. They've given up the the rubric of community before their names. Uh, And then the state university system or private colleges and universities after that. And in between, there's a fair number of institutions that we would, uh, I guess, call workforce uh, uh, education providers, uh, organizations that do things like train people how to be HVAC mechanics and the like. So it's actually a pretty broad ranging uh, practice area. Uh, I think it's fascinating. In the state of Florida, we're one of just a few states across the United States that has a board certification from the Florida Bar in education law. 
And one of the interesting things about that board certification is that it is K through SUS. And so it becomes challenging for even for legal professionals in education who probably only practice in one part of that. Maybe they practice in K through 12. They don't practice in, in state universities. But the board certification uh, handles all of that. I've been privileged to be board certified. I also chair the Florida Bar Education Law Committee, where we bring together uh, professionals across uh, all of these areas of education law and try to build bridges between the defense side and the plaintiff side, looking for opportunities to encourage one another uh, in unprecedented times uh, since the pandemic began. There really aren't a lot of precedent that has been uh, helpful uh, to deal with some of the new developments in, in, in education law that have happened just in the, in the past few years. Nate, I'm glad you brought up board certification, and, and that is quite an achievement. Um, so kudos to you for, for investing in, in your career and, and uh, being able to demonstrate to the public and to the bar your particular expertise in education. With that, I'll turn it over to Mia. Mia, what, what questions do you have for me? Nate, I you, you said it best. I mean, with all the different layers of education at the different levels, Florida, I like to think our state, contrary to some of the ways um, our national media portrays Florida, we're on the front end nationally for a lot of issues. And a lot of things are developed here in Florida, are tried out here in Florida. What are you seeing are some of the key developments in educational law nationally that we can expect to either you know, be adopted here in Florida, maybe in the next coming session or in the next couple of years? That where, where do you think we're going with educational law? Well, what a great question, Mia. And, and I, I want to first respond to the first part of your comments about Florida and what's happened in education law. In truth, Florida ranked second to the bottom nationally in K-12 education really as recently as early 2000s with just another Southern state sweeping the bottom below us. And a lot of that had to do with uh, the fact that unfortunately in, in many school districts, minorities were not really getting an education. They were uh, being shuttled through the education system, coming out on the other side, unable to read. And so account the accountability process that Florida began implementing during Jeb Bush's years really looking at it from the standpoint of objective assessments like the uh, NAEP, it's a national uh, test that's undertaken cross-nationally, it's remarkable the extent to which Florida has climbed those ranks to now being within the top portion of those ranks nationally and, and something to be proud of. Uh, and the gains have been most notable among minorities, African-Americans, Hispanics. You know, we have a very diverse state. In fact, we have one of the most diverse states in the country, people who come here who can't speak English, and they matriculate into public schools, unable to really do the most basic uh, reading. And so it's, it's a very, it's a very in difficult thing to take those kids and, and put them on grade level. But uh, it has been interesting to see Florida make those changes and to be considered in professional education circles, one of the leaders in K-12 education. Well, what's happening nationally? Uh, there are a lot of things happening nationally. Some of them, of course, are pandemic related. And those issues, there's a lot of uh, political disagreement about things like, should we require masks in the schools or should we require vaccination in the schools? And those are issues that pertain not just to K-12, but to the state universities and the private universities. A lot of private universities are requiring uh, all of those things. And here in the state of Florida, 
Uh, we precluded uh, in the K-12 level and even in the public uh, post-secondary level, some of those things. Aren't they even maybe possibly having a special session, Nate, in Florida to address some of those issues? Well, exactly. So that's uh, coming up here in just a matter of a couple of weeks and folks are scrambling to figure out uh, what's going to come out of that session. And I don't, uh, I, it, both in my capacity as chair of the Education Law Committee and, and on this call, we're not here to have discussions about the pros or cons of those policies, but rather to point out that it really does become an issue that, you know, the legal system has to deal with. And way, the way that shows up right now is that there have been a, a series of class action lawsuits filed across the country against uh, all kinds of uh, educational institutions uh, for this, when the students were forced back home, you know, they couldn't engage in, in on-site learning. And so in the K-12 section, that meant that students who were previously receiving aid uh, for disabilities of various kinds, you know, now were not able to go on campus to receive that kind of aid. So there's litigation involving that. And then there's the litigation maybe more known about students who paid various fees for services on campus that they then didn't receive because they were forced home. A lot of those cases are still matriculating through the system, even here in the state of Florida. In the last session, there was a bill uh, to address some of that. It's now chapter law 2021-232, uh, which was essentially an immunity statute that was adopted to assist some of these institutions in connection with steps that uh, were, quote, reasonably necessary uh, to undertake by those schools in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but in any event, uh, those issues are still being worked out, and that's an area where we're likely to see a lot of litigation still. I think there's probably four cases pending at the state level by individuals who are upset about the mandates or, or uh, upset about different aspects of that, and there have been rulings in the circuit courts that have sometimes been against the state. Most recently, the first district uh, appeared to, um, without ruling on the merits yet, first district court of appeal here in, in uh, Leon County Circuit. It's the court that oversees all the state agencies where the state agencies have home rule authority. That court restored an injunction that, and well, that court restored a law that, uh, that the circuit court has essentially ruled was unlawful. Uh, and again, without a ruling on the merits has begun to signal in that case that maybe we're gonna see a ruling in favor of the state on that. Anyway, fascinating issues all associated with, uh, with the pandemic. Nate, I would, you know, we're talking about the national level. So while our things are going through the state, I would think all eyes would, you know, on a national level would be seeing what Florida and other states are doing on the pandemic level as it makes its way through the court systems. On another issue, on a national level, are you seeing that the states are dealing with a difference between how to deal with for-profit education institutions and not-for-profit institutions? Is that something that has any type of traction or attention on a national level? Yeah, so that's a good question, Mia. So a decade ago, uh, during in particular the Obama administration, there was um, major changes in the Title IV regulations, which are the regulations that pertain to financial aid for students. And there was a concern voiced, in some respects, bipartisan, that for-profit entities were, were graduating students who came out with a lot of debt 
and may or may not have been able to find a career uh, in the particular degree program that they majored in. And so that led to some significant changes in Title IV regulations that uh, restricted uh, the ability of for-profit entities in the area of marketing and required, for example, reporting on whether their students were in fact getting jobs and the like. Um, during the last administration, uh, that focus eased a bit, but, um, but again, in this administration, we're beginning to see uh, efforts to, again, focus on for-profit providers uh, with uncertain repercussions yet, but that rulemaking, and we understand it, is ongoing. You know, another area that, that this really impacts is that nationally, there is right now occurring what's called the student enrollment cliff. And that is uh, impacting at the university level. Uh, it's said that over the next 10 years, there will be fewer students to go to, to universities than was previously the case as, as a percentage of the population. And so what's happening in particular at private liberal arts colleges, not for-profit in this case, but not-for-profit entities, is that there's a great financial pressure on smaller institutions which is also leading to a merger and acquisition effort uh, nationally. Some of the uh, schools are being purchased by other nonprofit institutions. Some are being purchased by for-profit institutions. The focus of some of these schools is being changed to uh, online learning. And in any event, our firm has been involved in more of these mergers and acquisitions in the last year, impacting certainly colleges and universities, but even workforce uh, education to a greater extent in the last year than maybe in the last five years combined um, at that level of merger and acquisition activity un under being undertaken now because of the financial pressure on the institutions. That's really interesting. You know, we see that happen in what we think of the traditional business model, but didn't know that that type of merger and acquisition was also happening you know, with the educational institutions. That's really interesting. Shannon, do you have any questions? Yes. Nate, in, in terms of sort of the day-to-day the -day activities that a lawyer who practices in education law does, I'm sure it varies, but what, what are some of the types of, of services that you tend to provide or that um, education institutions seek you out for in particular? Well, uh, kind of the full range, Shannon. Um, thanks for asking that question. Uh, certainly, um, I get involved in mergers and acquisitions to, to assist with um, structuring those deals. But on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, I might be involved in that. I might be involved in litigation. I'm at the end of the day a litigator. Uh, and so uh, whether it's class action litigation right now, we're, we're handling trademark dispute between two uh, universities uh, over whether or not you know the trademarks that, that one is utilizing are, are protected or not. We do a lot of work in the area of, a, of licensure. You'll be surprised the number of institutions that are offering services in the state of Florida online that don't realize that actually they've got to be licensed to do that. And so sometimes they will uh, get cease and desist letters from the Florida Commission on Independent Education, and then they'll start looking for somebody to help uh, make sure that they can come into compliance with the requirements to be licensed in the state. I would say in that in that world, uh, Florida ranks among the most uh, regulatory of the states uh, up there with New York and California, Texas. Um, there are some states where an online provider of education doesn't need don't need to be regulated, but 
typically in Florida, if you're going to offer a degree program and even a non-degree program, you've got to be licensed here. An example of a non-degree program that sometimes surprises uh, even uh, sophisticated providers, they don't realize they need to be licensed, for example, to offer a program that leads to a certificate. It's called in the state of Florida, a diploma program. And there are a few exceptions to that. For example, if you're a continuing uh, education provider or uh, contract training by employers of their employees. But for the most part, if you're gonna uh, obtain a certificate uh, as part of a, a non-degree program, even course in the state of Florida, you've gotta be licensed. So we deal with some of that. Finally, accreditation is another example. I could go on and on, but accreditation is another example where we do a lot of work. Sometimes accreditors take adverse action against their institutions for various reasons. And when that happens, we, we can help institutions deal with that. Sometimes institutions just need to get accredited. And, um, and actually, that's usually a, a joint effort, both of a law firm and just an education provider to, to make that happen. So we, we deal with a lot of accreditation issues as well. Nate, we talked a, a bit on some of the developments in Florida as it relates to the pandemic when we were talking about some of the hot national topics in education. Are there other issues in Florida that you see that there may be some key developments in Florida educational law? Like critical race theory, we're hearing, I'm hearing a lot about that. Is that percolating at all in Florida? Uh, yes, it is. In fact, uh, this last session in 2021, we had four bills that fall into the controversial uh, category within, within state politics. One uh, essentially does require institutions to conduct surveys of students to determine whether or not those surveys feel as if they're getting viewpoint neutral presentations on issues uh, like critical race theory or whether they're not. This last year, there was a foreign influence bill that was passed uh, due to a lot of media around, in particular, foreign countries that were uh, providing grants and uh, research money to institutions across the United States and a concern that some of that research was potentially sensitive in nature and making its way back to foreign countries. We had a bill adopted this last year uh, requiring disclosure of so-called foreign gifts uh, to both the public and the private sector state universities in the state. And interestingly, uh, gifts is defined to include contracts with foreign entities. It's a fairly broad concept. So, and again, that's a law that was just adopted. I'm trying to get the word out to my clients, but a vast majority, I think, of, of institutions in the state don't even realize that this is a semi-annual reporting requirement that's kicked in under Chapter 2021-76. You know, another issue that's very practical that a lot of people think about again, during the pandemic, is nursing education. It said that there's a radical shortage of nurses in the state, uh, really, um, of all sorts of healthcare workers um, in, in the state. And that's been an interesting issue from an education standpoint in, this, in the state of Florida. For a while, the Board of Nursing was very um, restrictive on the launch of new nursing programs to the point where it was almost impossible for new institutions to enter the marketplace. Then came a switch about five, maybe 10 years ago, a little bit less, where the legislature eased the rules so that more private educators could get involved in providing nursing education. More recently, that switched the other way, despite, uh, interestingly, the, the new shortage in these areas. 
And there are several reasons for that, but one is that when students take the national uh, nursing exams, they haven't been scoring where uh, the state legislature believes they should. And so that has led to uh, a change in statute that says that if that's the case for a particular institution over two or three consecutive years, that they essentially uh, no longer can offer that education. And it's actually an interesting policy discussion because it turns out that the institutions that kind of fall into that category of maybe not always performing up to snuff are also typically serving minorities and, um, and persons from with, that have English as a second language issue. So there's actually you know, some, some interesting policy issues under, undergirding that right now, but I would say that nursing education is probably a foremost issue that the legislature is gonna take up again, probably this term, to try to figure out what is the, what is the right balance between you know, enabling uh, persons who might not be able to get into a state university in order to practice nursing to have options elsewhere and, and you know, what are the standards that ought to be applied in those circumstances. Those are a few of the issues pending right now that I think are interesting. So, Nate, this has been fascinating. I had never really thought about some of the civil rights issues that you brought up and the diversity issues. Is, is there anything else that um, you'd like to, to mention that we haven't talked about yet that people need to know about education law? Well, uh, I think what's been interesting, just, just like in healthcare, Shannon and Mia, you know, telehealth becoming a, a force in, in healthcare. Uh, no question, online education is here to stay. There were some institutions that had pioneered it prior to the pandemic uh, and were, were beginning to you know, graduate people just online. But I think it's fair to say that that, that movement broadened substantially to the point where you know, there's probably not a, a university in the state of Florida that doesn't have an online program now and including a program that you can complete within four years without ever attending in person. Uh, and likewise, in the K-12 sector, online education uh, turned out to be essential for the kids that couldn't go to classes. In the meantime, what were they gonna do? Well, they, be, they went online. I think what we're finding is that there are, you know, as with anything else, positives and negatives uh, to, to this. And there's probably, I, you know, I don't think we're going to necessarily see a world where residential education goes away by any stretch of the imagination. But I think we will see a world where online education finds its place. And it, it will be a, a significant and substantial place. It will be for some students probably the only place they'll go. But I suspect for the vast majority, it will be both. So online education is certainly going to continue to be an area where uh, we do a lot of work and consulting. Sometimes that's licensure related. Um, sometimes it's federal financial aid related, trying to explain to institutions what can and cannot be done in that world. You know, it's also immigration related. Uh, institutions in the state of Florida have to uh, receive SEBIS uh, recognition in order to bringing, bring in foreign students. And that is another area that we do a fair amount of work. And finally, Title IX, an issue that we have not yet discussed, uh, which is certainly right now sort of a core federal, federal changes are occurring even as we speak in that area. That's going to continue to be an area that interestingly becomes an issue for online education too. Uh, right now, Title IX, you know, we think of that in the context of athletics uh, for women and, you know, a, another controversial issue, transgender persons and how that plays out. 
But uh, Title IX is also itself just an anti-discrimination provision, and it's a provision that that applies, therefore, interestingly, to both online and not online programs. And, and when it comes to athletics, interestingly, right now, not only physical students on a residential campus matter for purposes of determining whether an institution has uh, got the correct number of teams for males and females, but actually online students count in that process, too. Title IX is going to go through, uh, everybody expects some major changes over the next two years, and that's an area where we help institutions, both when it comes to athletics compliance, but also just putting in place the right investigation protocols and uh, handbooks and the like. Um, and then finally, we do a lot of work in the employment space, and that's also Title IX related, as well as Title VII related, and implicates, in the case of uh, education, academic freedom an area that I've spent a lot of time researching and writing about and uh, doing some presentations on. So those are the issues that are near and dear in my heart. I, again, I think personally, uh, education is one of the most uh, intriguing areas to practice law in. And uh, if we can ever help anybody listening here to uh, with any of those questions, on a, even on a pro bono basis, it's something I'm passionate to do. Well, I, I think what we've learned too, that there's a lot of nuances in Florida that um, might surprise people who are coming to Florida. Um, and if they're interested in coming to Florida, they, you know, what do you think might be some of the biggest surprises that they might face that's different from other states where they do business, Nate? Yeah, well, I think it's the licensure issue that I alluded to before. Actually, we're seeing a large number, interestingly, of Latino institutions coming into Florida, predominantly into Miami, Tampa, a little bit into Orlando. Oftentimes, these are very large uh, private institutions in places like uh, Central America and South America that are planting a flag here, and they're finding out that that the that the rules are a little bit different than where they're coming from. And so, that's the kind of work that we do a lot of. And then the other area coming into the state of Florida, there are a fair number of institutions, particularly out of California. Uh, which is not a member of a reciprocity agreement called CERA. If, if you're in a state that is recognized by CERA, you commonly can count your licensure in the state where you are uh, as applicable in other CERA member states. But California is, is, I think, one of the few states that that is not a member of CERA. And so we find that some California schools who are coming into Florida are also learning that there are some licensure requirements here that are unique and unusual. And they're all designed to protect students at the end of the day. We have in the state of Florida, for example, a scholarship fund where if an institution, you know, basically goes bankrupt, uh, it's going to hold those students harmless so that they can go to another school and find and complete their degree, which is, of course, totally needed and appropriate. So where does the scholarship money come from, Nate, that funds those? So it's, it's part of the licensure process for an institution is that they uh, pony up some funds that, and the amount depends upon their number of their students and the number of their degree programs. But essentially, that's a sort of a tax, if you will, that's imposed upon an institution to do business in the state of Florida. Well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot going on in education in Florida and on a national basis. And we really appreciate, I mean, frankly, we could have it seems like on a lot of these topics that you address, we could have separate podcasts on all of those issues. There's so much to cover, but I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of give us a 10,000 foot 
perspective of education law in Florida, not only what some of the changes that are happening, but also some of the challenges that clients face and who they need to contact for day-to-day advice. So thanks so much, Dr. Adams. And um, Shannon and I appreciate your time today very much. Thank you for having me. And again, we just want to thank everybody for joining us. And we hope and look forward to you joining us again on another topic that touches upon our great state of Florida and in particular what's going on here in our capital city in Tallahassee. Thanks so much and hope everyone has a great day. Thank you for listening to Florida Capital Conversations. For more information on our Tallahassee office, please visit hklaw.com slash Tallahassee.